When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Afternoon, Jim. Good to see you again. So quickly after the last podcast, but there's so much going on. I think it behoves us to talk about a number of small number of issues. Top of my list, of course, and I know it's top of yours as well, is what's going on in the UK, because it is pretty dramatic stuff. And I think there is lots to expand on. Even since we did our last pod on this, I know that I have written and spoken about the issues around the housing market and interest rates, and inflation, and the UK economy, and Sunak's five promises. But I think we need to go through a number of different aspects of that, because we can't cover it all in one pod, because it's jaw-dropping stuff, to be honest. I know you've got a couple of things to talk about in the context of other things uh, happening, particularly in the United States, where we've had Jay Powell testimony, and I know you've been reading up on that. I also note that today it's not just the Bank of England putting up interest rates. I think the Swiss have done it. I think the Norwegians have done it. Did New Zealand put up rates today? Or well, somebody else has put rates up today. Anyway, we have the Bank of England just prior to us recording this has put rates up for the 13th consecutive time. 13 meetings, 13 rate rises, this time by half a percentage point or 50 basis points in the jargon. But before I start ranting on about the total monetary mess and other economic mess that the UK has gotten itself into, why don't you run us through what you've been looking at in the States and also one or two things closer to home, Jim? We had merchandise exports for April published yesterday. So we now have data for the first four months of the year. 
And as has been the trend over the past couple of months, we continue to see weakness in the headline numbers. Overall exports in the first four months down by 5.2%. And the breakdown of that is interesting. Food up by 11.9%, but chemical and related products is down by 6.4%. And within that, the most important component, which is medical and pharmaceutical products, that's down 17%. Okay, and organic chemicals, the other component is down by just 0.3%. And then if you look at the geographic breakdown, exports to Great Britain up by 3.3%, overall exports to the EU 27 up by 7.5%, but exports to the United States down by 22.7%. And I just looked into the breakdown of exports to the States and chemical and related products exports that country down by 27.1%. So while at an overall level, there is softening coming through. It is very specific to exports of chemical and related products to the United States. So I, I think it's more of a technical issue going on there in the post-COVID world. Um, and it, it's, it's probably not something to get terribly exercised about at this stage. But as I said the last time, it's still a trend worth watching. But I, I think the most important point is that, you know, exports to Great Britain, exports to the European Union, still growing quite strongly. So that that's, um, I think, an upbeat story with a note of caution thrown in. In terms of the United States, Jay Powell was speaking to lawmakers on Wednesday night. And I think the standout quote from Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is that the process of getting inflation down to 2% still has a long way to go. That's taken, well, it could be taken two ways. One is that there's going to be further significant tightening of interest rate policy, which would not be my interpretation. Perhaps there's a further modest tightening in line. The other interpretation is that rates will remain at these elevated levels for the foreseeable future. So I, I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. You may get another uh, modest tightening of policy, but I think more importantly, you're more likely now to see rates persisting at these levels for some time. In terms of data out of the United States, and this is the story in most countries at the moment. Uh, there's a mixed picture emerging. We had monthly existing home sales which were up by 2.3% in the month. So that's relatively strong and certainly stronger than the market had expected. So evidence there that there's a little bit of life still in the housing market, despite the fact that um, interest rates have gone up by so much. But then we got the weekly unemployment claims. This is basically the number of people who sign on for um, unemployment benefits. And uh, that was at 264,000 in the most recent week, uh, stronger than, ex higher than expected, the highest since October 21, which does suggest that there is some softening starting to come true in the labour market. And OK, you, you can never jump to conclusions, as we always say, based on one or two months data. But uh, from the Federal Reserve's perspective, um, and indeed, the European Central Bank has a similar perspective uh, the labour market and what happens there is going to be a key influencer of what happens interest rates into the future. 
Um, and as I say, a little bit of softening, but in overall terms, the US unemployment rate is still low. Uh, the economy still is creating a considerable number of jobs every month. Uh, but this may be just a straw in the wind that would give some solace to the Federal Reserve in terms of how it sees interest rate policy at the moment. I'm now going to witter on for uh, hopefully not too long about the UK. And I'm going to take a leaf out of your book and talk about some numbers. We've had a half percentage point rise in interest rates. The first thing to say about that is that unlike the United States, the market clearly expects these interest rates in the UK to go even higher. And we now expect by the first quarter of next year, roughly 6% interest rates, uh, base rates from the, from, from the Bank of England, with all of the knock-on effects for mortgages in particular, but anything that's interest rate sensitive in general. And it's always important to stress, as we mentioned last time, as some of our commenters have kindly reminded us, that there are lots of sectors of the UK economy that are sensitive to interest rates, not just housing. The cost of capital for businesses is affected clearly by rates of interest of all kinds. So bear that in mind that these interest rates affect lots of things. The basic numbers are in a population of about 65 million in the UK, 14, just over 14 million adults have a mortgage. And one of the interesting facts about that, and I don't know whether this is similar to Ireland, Jim, but 30, 40 years ago, um, 40% of households uh, had a mortgage. And now the figure is just under 30%. So far fewer people proportionately, far fewer householders, relatively speaking at least, have a mortgage. And that's because of two very simple reasons. We've all gotten a lot older, the population has, and older people typically own their homes outright. And younger people can't afford a mortgage. So they don't have one and they rent. So that has the consequences that just like in Ireland, the UK has a rental crisis. Rents have been going through the roof, to coin a phrase. You couldn't make this bit up. The effect, therefore, on of interest rates on mortgages is going to affect A, younger people and B, poorer people. And if you're a Tory, you would think, well, actually, that's not too bad because none of those people ever vote for us anyway. So all of the effects of the mortgage, not all of them, but the bulk of the effects are going to be felt with this smaller cohort of people who tend to be younger, who tend to be smaller. And boy, are they going to feel it. It really is extraordinary. Between the end of last year and the end of this year, so we're in the middle of the period that I'm talking about now, a quarter of all fixed rate mortgages are going to come off their fixed rates. So we started to see it. And this is the rolling thing about mortgage rates, fixed mortgage rates happening is that it all 60% of the pain to be that is to come from higher interest rates on mortgages has yet to be felt it's 60% so the bulk of the pain the financial pain has yet to be felt and it's going to be felt mostly next year in 2024 which will probably be an election year but as i say the people it it mostly affects aren't tory voters anyway but their parents might be that's one point that tory strategists should note Different people are obviously going to be hit differently. The size of the mortgage relative to income, the length of your fix. The hit to household income is going to be extraordinary. And there's also regional consequences. It's going to be worse where you'd expect it to be worse in London. And it's going to be least not too far away from you are now in Northern Ireland. The hit in London is going to be greater than 10% of disposable household income. In Northern Ireland, it's going to be about 3% of disposable income. We think with 6% base rates, 
the extra amount of money is going to be multiple billions that households are going to have to find. The problem that he's got now are the five pledges that he made, and I checked them on the government website before the podcast started. Any good economist would have told him if he's going to make economic promises based on economic forecasts, make the forecast by all means, but don't put a date on it. And there on top of the pledges, he said, this is what I'm going to do in 2023. I'm going to halve inflation, grow the economy, shrink debt, shrink NHS waiting lists and stop the boats. All of these targets are now at risk, including the inflation target, interestingly. GDP is growing by 0.2%, but is under threat, clearly, from all of the interest rate rises that we've had. Debt, the ONS told us yesterday, went over 100% of GDP. It's not been as high since somebody called Harold Macmillan was uh, prime minister. NHS waiting lists keep going up at record levels, and there's no sign that the boats are going to stop. So there is the mortgage bomb is about to be detonated. Why has all of this happened? I hope that you're about to say, well, why is it so bad in the UK? There's an ex-economic uh, journalist, he was Channel 4, I think he was another newspaper called Paul Mason. He's a bit of a lefty, but he has this fantastic diagram of what has happened to the UK. And it has the things that have affected you, Jim, in Ireland and every other country, um, Putin, uh, pricing power uh, of corporations, high energy prices. It doesn't have the pandemic, but it's there lurking in the background. But of course, on top of these things that have affected all economies, including the UK, the UK chart has this big box that nobody can ever mention over here called Brexit. Um, interestingly, it has a, a skills shortage aspect to it as well, um, which is part of the tight labour market problem. And it also has something called the moron premium, which is the legacy effects of the Quercetin this trust budget last year, and it all adds up to a big problem. And it's something that the Bank of England isn't able to mod monitor, isn't able to put into its models, because it would the, all of these things are new, because we have this weak economy and ultra-tight labour market, something that's never happened before, even during the 1970s. So they have a real problem. So they're putting up interest rates to try and counteract the effect of Brexit, they're putting up interest rates to try and counter the effects of the skills shortage because we can't import any workers anymore. They're putting up interest rates to try and get around the, the moron premium from the Liz Trust quasi quatang policies. And they're trying to put up interest rates to counter the effects of Brexit because people in Europe can't be bothered to send us their food anymore because they've got better things to do with their lives. What interest rates have got to do with any of this, you might well ask. And the answer is absolutely nothing. The only thing that they can do is push down on the labour market when they're going to have to cause a recession. And the bottom line for me, Jim, I think, is to put all of that together is that you and I many times have almost disagreed over the causes of high house prices in, over the last couple of years. I've asserted on several occasions that it's mostly, if not everything to do with interest rates. You've been more nuanced than that and said it's got lots of things going on. I think we're about to test the hypothesis of or find out just how much high interest rates matter to the UK. And my guess is that they matter a lot. I think that there's going to be a lot of household insolvencies and that the UK housing market and therefore economy is in for a lot of trouble, particularly if interest rates go up again. I have never argued that interest rates were not influential in terms of driving it was the debate that we had. I used to assert that yeah. they, they were the main thing. And you quite rightly said, 
they're not the main thing. There are lots of things going on, yeah, including that. interest rates. So it was, yeah, of we, we, we were violently agreeing with each other, but I think you were saying to me quite rightly, actually, you've got to think about supply and demand of housing as well as interest rates and their effects. So, so you were saying it's more complicated than you're saying, Chris. And I think I conceded, actually, that you were right. Far, far be it for me to say I was right, because uh, the, the hypothesis is certainly going to be tested in the UK. But if you look at the Irish housing market, rising interest rates do impact on economic activity. They impact on employment eventually. That's the reason why interest rates are going up. So you would have thought they would impact on house prices. But there's there's a whole lot of other factors at play as well. There's the demographic thing here. Uh, we have a rapidly growing population, 5.1 million in April of last year, which is the highest since the famine back in the 1830s. We have, obviously, we have a bulge in the household formation part of the population. Those people sort of between 30 and 40, or even 25 and 40, who are typically house buyers. We have the fact that we just built over 13,000 new houses per annum between 2011 and 2021. So th there is a serious shortage of houses. We also have a record level of deposits in the banking system here, 152 billion at the end of March. And real estate agents tell me that they are seeing, you know, a lot of cash or high cash buyers still very active in the market. So there's, there's, there's a range of different factors, but I totally take your point that, interest rates is probably the most influential and I think will have the most significant impact over the next couple of years. But Chris, there was a piece in The Economist magazine last week about housing markets. The Economist looked across a number of different housing markets and basically concluded that there is evidence now that many housing markets actually have bottomed out at this stage. Um, and that is despite the interest rate increase we've seen, despite the fact that rates are likely to rise further everywhere. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I am more encouraged than ever now after hearing what the economist has just said. <laughs> uh, to believe that the housing market most definitely hasn't bottomed out, particularly in the UK, but also elsewhere. The curse of the economist, you know it well, don't you, Jim? Yeah, I do indeed. The, the number of times they've, there was a famous one from like all the way back in the 80s when they forecast that oil prices were going to go below $5 a barrel on the day that they published their front cover, the end of the end of expensive oil or something like that. The oil price went up then for years and years and years and there have been several examples and so I, I love the economists i think they're fabulous journalists they're no better at forecasting 
and probably worse forecasters actually than the average forecaster. I don't think they have particular insight into what's going on. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I I would take your point on you know the economist interpretation, but still they they provide evidence in that piece supporting what they're saying. I, I agree with you. The economist is no better at forecasting anything than the rest of us. There have been some monumental screw ups in the past, like we we've all had in our forecasting careers. Oh, hands up! I mean, I'm just as bad at forecasting as the as the economist. It's it's about. Uh, having the right model for your forecast. It's about having the right level of understanding of what's going on. And what has become clear from all of this is that we don't, as I said the other day, fully understand the inflation process, what actually drives inflation. It clearly is more complicated than we previously thought. The Bank of England got it very, very wrong. Everybody got it wrong. Every central bank got it wrong. All that debate about transitory versus non-transitory inflation. Um, We've been talking about this for years. But one of the insights from all of this that I think that we can offer our listeners, Jim, and I think this is relatively new. Um, We know that uh, in both Britain and Ireland, but particularly Britain, actually, from the data that I have just been describing, that compared to the 1970s, the last time we had this stagflation problem, back then, everybody was on a variable rate mortgage. These days, the more typical uh, mortgager takes out a two to five year fix and sometimes is going a bit longer than that but more 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 people are fixing but Jim if you think about this take a step back from this and think about the the biggest financial decision for most people in their lives is taking out a mortgage to take out a an interest rate bet on that mortgage that is somehow different to the length of time over which you expect to repay the mortgage. So say you take out a 25-year mortgage, which I still think is fairly standard. Not to fix your mortgage for 25 years is a massive, huge financial gamble that people should not take. And so it's, it's a, I know this is a lot of hindsight talking, given that the pain that I know mortgage holders are going to be facing here in the UK and also the pain that I have felt in the past when I've been faced with 17% mortgage rates and taken up 100% for a short time of my monthly disposable income a long time ago. But when you think about it, the standard practice, the standard advice that we should be giving people when they take out a mortgage is think about how long you want to borrow the money for and then fix for that length of time. Anything else is a huge, enormous gamble. Now, it happens over the recent past to have been a gamble worth taking because interest rates, you know, for years and years and years have been falling. But now we're learning just how big a bet people have made over the recent past and what the consequences are going to be of getting that bet wrong. So I think that from a financial advice point of view, I would actually, if I was a regulator, be telling everybody now that the right thing, the right advice, if you're a mortgage advisor, for example, I'm not, I'm not qualified to give mortgage advice. But if I were, I would say, fix for the length of your mortgage. And if you can't afford that fix, you're going to have to do something else. You're either going to have to explicitly accept the interest rate risk, which I suppose is what a lot of people have done implicitly. But I think that risk needs to be spelled out that, you know, we've just we're living through a period in the UK where people's interest rates, when they reset, are in, in many cases going to go up three, four, and sometimes five times. That's a big, big risk that people should not be running, in my view. Uh, I, to- I totally agree with you, Chris. 
I mean, in the past, Ireland was totally exposed to variable mortgage rates. So every time uh, the Central Bank of Ireland and later the European Central Bank did anything on the interest rate front, you know, it impacted hugely. But there is much more of a fixed element to the market now, probably not fixed for long enough. But I was looking back on uh, a text I received from somebody I know last September, October, and they were being offered, they were on a tracker mortgage at the time, but they were being offered a five-year fix at 2.8%, a 10-year fix at 3.1%. And they said they had no intention of moving house in the next 10 years. So there wasn't the case of having to pay a penalty to get out of a mortgage, a fixed rate mortgage, which is often the case. So I told them unambiguously fix for 10 years at 3.1%. That's what I would do. I couldn't offer the advice, but I said, if I was offered this set of circumstances, are these choices? This is what I would do, fix for 10 years. You buy yourself certainty, you buy yourself the ability to sleep at night. And clearly, if you can budget allows for the repayment consistent with the 3.1% fixed rate, that's what you should go for. So I, I just think in terms of achieving greater financial stability, both for the financial institutions themselves, the stability of the banking system, and also for the mortgage holders themselves, uh, the more people that are fixed, the better it is for the stability of the economy. So I'm 100% with you on that. And even at the moment, I keep getting calls from people that I know offering, sorry, asking for advice on what sort of mortgages they should opt for at this stage. And my stock answer is, well, you go to your financial institution, find out from them what they're offering you on a variable, on various fixes. And then I'll answer the question for you. In my opinion, you find actually that different institutions have very different strategies in terms of what they're offering, what they're trying to grow their loan book by, etc. So there are many different rates on offer. But uh, the answer I'm typically giving people at the moment is that you should go for a fix and the fix should be as long as possible. The interesting thing for me in all of that advice is a, a couple of things, actually. Uh, first of all, I think you or any listener might rightly say to me, it's all very well you, Chris, saying now fix your mortgage after interest rates have spiked up. But I think you've just given us a nice piece of evidence to suggest that it's not just hindsight no. we're, we're giving here. You've actually given proper um, at personal advice, uh, but suitably qualified because we're not qualified mortgage brokers or anything like that. We're not connected in any way to any of those industries. But I think what people will find very difficult their heads around is the idea that I am giving this advice with a lot of hindsight that the right thing to have done would, would have been to have fixed ages ago. But what I'm also saying is that I think personally the right thing to do is always to fix. It doesn't matter where you yeah. are because otherwise you are making an interest rate bet. So a lot of people will be saying, oh, fix now. But when interest rates have gone up, um, I'd rather wait. And that's fine because they are acknowledging that they are betting on interest rates. And it's a bet that could go right. It's a bet that could go wrong. And I think it's better that we make these things explicit rather than implicit. But I think the rule of thumb, from which there can be lots of exceptions, of course, is that if you don't have a strong view about interest rates, and I think it's right not to have a strong view about interest rates because we will often get it wrong, um, go with what you can afford and go with as long a fix as you possibly can. Um, and I think that's, that's the right advice. And any other decision involves uh, a lot of risk and just be, make, make sure that you know explicitly what the risk is that you're taking because your interest rate forecast, as we know, Jim, can be very wrong. 
Yeah, it's an insurance policy, Chris. It buys you certainty. And I think certainty is very important for a lot of people. Uh, if, if you're a gambler, well, so be it. You can, you know, do whatever you want to do, betting on rates. Chris, if I could just change the subject slightly. I remember seven years ago tomorrow, I was invited to speak at a conference for an organization. And the topic I was given to speak to was now that Brexit is out of the way, what next? And I remember um, getting up at about four o'clock on the Thursday morning and saw on my phone that Britain had just voted to leave the European Union. Um, my response was a four-letter word that I won't uh, repeat um, on air. Oh, you can say gosh. Um, gosh. So, or drat. So I, I, I stood up the following morning at nine o'clock in front of a, a panicked audience to try and figure out what the hell all of this meant. I have to say my view back then was that it was going to prove disastrous for the United Kingdom. Uh, seven years later, still too early to tell, but seven years later, I feel quite vindicated in that view. A bit more nuanced in terms of the impact it would have on the Irish economy. And I think back then I was probably overly pessimistic about the challenge it would pose for Ireland because to date, and I stress to date, because the full trading arrangements with between Ireland and the United Kingdom are not yet in place, but to date it would suggest actually that Brexit has not had a huge impact in the aggregate on the Irish economy and in fact could have benefited in certain areas. Okay, I, I can hear people out there responding to this. Well, I do all my business with Great Britain and it's been a nightmare. So there are individual businesses and companies that have been specifically badly affected by Brexit. But in an overall macroeconomic sense, I think Ireland has done okay from Brexit. And I think it shows the maturity of the Irish economy. It shows the way the maturity of Irish business leaders effectively, who have actually responded to the threat and the challenge posed by Brexit and have, you know, adopted their business models, adopted their trading relationships, etc, to deal with it. And, and that's why I guess I am a perennial optimist about economic outlooks, because uh, I just think people are incredibly innovative, flexible. They deal with, uh, and particularly business leaders, they deal with these challenges and they just get on with it and do it. But anyway, that's my sort of Brexit perspective on Ireland. The UK, tell me about it. How long have you got? And just to trail, uh, we will, um, we're delighted to be uh, hosting. Professor Chris Gray, again, it's the third or fourth time he's been on the pod next week to celebrate the seventh anniversary of Brexit. My God, seven years. It's extraordinary. And he will enlighten us in the way that he normally does. And I would thoroughly recommend him. He's an absolutely marvellous fellow, uh, brilliant, and writes extensively and speaks extensively, speaks very well. He will be far more enlightening than me. In the time available to us, Jim, I'll talk to you, I'll tell you about it's, it's almost an economics joke. That, that's not an oxymoron. Uh, only this week, I think one of the economists involved is actually ensconced in one of the Northern Ireland uh, universities, actually. A guy called Graham Gudgeon. Do you know that name? Oh, yeah, I know Graham, yeah. So he's written a paper uh, or a response with another economist. The doyen, if you like, of economists who uh, continuously update their estimates of the damage or benefits to, to the UK economy from Brexit 
is a guy called Professor uh, John Springford. He uh, produces this thing called a doppelganger model, which he, he creates this artificial economy, models it based on what all our uh, sister and competitor economies are doing, compares it to how they've done, compared it to the UK, makes a few adjustments, subtracts the difference, and said that's the Brexit effect. And he reckons already British GDP is about 5% lower than it would otherwise have been, which is massive, which is huge. That's probably the largest estimate that I've seen. Other estimates are a bit smaller than that. Gudgeon and somebody called Lou have taken him on and uh, said, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And Jonathan Portis, another professor of economics at King's College here in London, has tried to adjudicate the debate. And there's a wonderful tweet that says, what Springford says, this is a good model that I've done, but please, you're allowed to check my homework. Here's all your data. Gudgeon and Lou came back and said, I've checked your homework and don't like your model. So we're using an older model, but our model results match your model results, but we still disagree with them. Fortis says the models all agree, but I refuse the answer that they give. So it's a classic economics debate about how big is the effect. And they're all having a row and they're all saying it's the only debate is how big the number it is, not not the sign. Everybody agrees that the sign is minus. For me, the economics are only part of it. It's also what it's done to Britain socially and politically. Brexit gave us Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has wrecked, I think, British political life. British governance has suffered so much um, and is broken, quite frankly, with all sorts of consequences. It's not just economic, but the economic consequences ripple through into so many different areas. That absence of GDP growth means that we don't have any money. Our fiscal debate is completely different to yours, Jim. We don't have the money. And because we don't have the money, the NHS is completely screwed. Public services are also similarly affected. Jim, 7% of the available workforce, the measured workforce in the UK, is on the long-term sick today. Two and a half million people are claiming disability benefits of one kind or another. That's a 25% increase in the last few years. 25% of people suddenly becoming sick? No, that doesn't happen. We're not suddenly becoming sicker for any particular reason. It's got nothing to do with the pandemic. That's over. This is now two and a half million people say they're too sick to work. That's because an awful lot of them are sitting in NHS queues, unable to be treated for their illness. And so they're not getting better. I was in a city in Northern Great Britain recently and uh, for the first, well, no, it wasn't the first time actually, but I hadn't been there in years. And uh, one thing that really struck me forcibly was the level of um, obesity. It was stunning. Yes. And we, we all know that uh, obesity can contribute to long term, uh, have can have long term health consequences, not least diabetes and, and similar diseases. Relatively recently, the government was spending £14 billion on disability benefits by 27. So another three or four years time, if current trends are going to continue, that £14 billion is going to grow to 25. Now, these are huge fiscal numbers. And what it means is that, um, and I don't think this is unconnected to Brexit. I mean, you know, the fact that the NHS is unable to treat people is because it hasn't got enough money. There are other reasons why the NHS is in disarray, but money is the biggest one. Everything is connected to everything else, Jim. And what has economic growth got to do with money for the NHS? Well, if you don't have economic growth, you don't have growth in tax revenues. And Michael D doesn't agree with that. One of our least popular podcasts, <laughs> Jim, in recent months has been when we put Michael D in the, in the description of the podcast. I can tell you from bitter experience that our listeners 
um, do not want to pay any attention whatsoever to what Michael D says and what how we what we think about Michael D's comments. So perhaps we better just leave it there. Chris, in that regard, actually, uh, just to finish up on Michael D, do you uh, have to? He, he was out. He was out last weekend uh, talking about the forum on neutrality that's happening in Ireland this week. Um, it opened in UCC today. The protesters were out in force. Uh, Michal Martin, the Tawnishta, reacted really aggressively. You should watch the video. He was fantastic, in my view, the way he responded. It was I've, great always, I've always thought him a decent man, actually. Uh, yeah, it was, it was great to see him losing the head. Presumably you would keep Ireland well out of NATO, would you? I'd pull you out of the EU, let alone NATO. It's about time you had uh, our exit. No, I'd be, I'd be against all international organisations for Ireland. I think that there is... I mean, how many international organisations? I pull you out of the United Nations. I mean, I think you should, you know, you should become isolationists in in true independent spirit. Ireland first, make Ireland great again, Jim. Perhaps we should <laughs> okay, leave it there. Oh, good to talk to you. Take it easy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand. hope you enjoyed it our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as apple and spotify if you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements you can sign up to our Substack account comments and feedback are much appreciated 